Hello, everyone. I'm Heather Ward, the SCA's Director of Content Strategy, and you're listening to the SCA Podcast. Today's episode is part of our Expo Lecture Series, dedicated to showcasing a curated selection of the extensive live lectures offered at our Specialty Coffee Expo. Check out the show notes for relevant links and a full transcript of today's lecture. This episode of Expo 2019 Lectures Podcast is supported by Soft Engine Coffee One, powered by SAP. Built upon SAP's business-leading enterprise resource planning solution, Soft Engine Coffee One is designed to quickly and easily take your small to medium coffee company, working at any point along the coffee chain, to the next level of success. Learn more about Soft Engine Coffee One at softengine.com, with special pricing available for SCA members. Soft Engine, the most intelligent way to grow your business. The episode you're about to hear was recorded live at the 2019 Specialty Coffee Expo in Boston. Don't miss next year's lecture series in Portland. Find us on social media or sign up for our monthly newsletter to keep up to date with all of our announcements, including ways to get involved in next year's expo and early bird ticket release. Hundreds of smallholder coffee farmers in Yapocapa, Guatemala, have experienced leaf rust, drought, volcanic eruptions, and price fluctuations over the last few years. Profitability is the main constraint these farmers face in maintaining healthy households and addressing price issues and other shocks, much like many other smallholder coffee farmers around the world. Since 2015, Taya Brown has been conducting a multi-phase evaluation of constraints to technology uptake and profitability as part of a World Coffee Research Development Project that implemented the Centro Americano Hybrid to address leaf rust and low productivity. During a similar time frame, Ryan Chipman founded Yapocapa Coffee, a U.S.-based coffee importing enterprise focused on improving quality and transparency by becoming a direct link between U.S. roasters and a cooperative of Yapocapa farmers. In today's lecture, Taya shares a profitability analysis for one farmer group. Ryan builds on this to share how his business is learning to identify and address the various factors in profitability. Both present examples of site-specific scientific investigation focused on participatory and farmer-centric methods to identify profitability constraints and guide response efforts. Also, I will jump in occasionally to help you follow along. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you guys so much for coming. We're really excited to be talking about profitability for um, the, some of the coffee farmers that we work with in Yapocapa, Guatemala. And I'll apologize in advance. I have a, a little bit of a speech impediment, so there'll be times where I'll be stuttering, but I'll get through it. It'll be okay. Uh, I'll introduce myself. My name is uh, Ryan Chipman, um, and this is soon-to-be Dr. Taya Brown. And we're going to kind of be uh, going back and forth a little bit during this presentation to talk about uh, profitability for smallholder farmers and kind of their constraints in Yapocapa, Guatemala. I'll introduce myself first. Or, sorry, I already introduced myself. My name is Ryan Chipman. Um, what's funny is I kind of fell into the coffee world. I think a lot of you guys also kind of found yourself in coffee. It's not like we go to school and we're like, I studied coffee. I don't necessarily think that's a major quite yet. It might be in Portland, but probably not. Unlo- oh, sorry, never mind. Um, <laughs> But, um, yeah, I, I loved uh, studying community development as a form of, of uh, crime control, or at least trying to bring down uh, high levels of crime within um, some communities. And I love this idea of community development. Um, before 
continuing into, or before almost accepting a job for the Department of Justice, I decided to take a trip to Guatemala. And I met um, a couple on a bus that invited me to this community where they were needing an English teacher. And kind of the story goes on, and, and I was teaching English to these kids and realized that over 60% of the kids I was teaching English to, their parents were coffee farmers. And I got to know these, these parents really well, and I realized that one of the biggest constraints that they had was coffee farming just wasn't really that profitable of a career. And so I kind of had this idea of, like, where's my place in this? How can I help? Um, and that's kind of where we uh, eventually started um, what what we're doing now is Yepocapa Coffee, which we're working with this cooperative in Yepocapa called La Cooperativa Sanbirana, and a few other communities now helping create relationships between coffee roasters and the farmers there. I'll let Taya introduce herself. Hi, I guess it's afternoon, right? Good afternoon. Uh, yeah, so my name is Taya Brown. I'm a PhD candidate in the Horticultural Sciences Department at Texas A&M University, and how I came into coffee, I do sort of actually study coffee, but um, <laughs> that's not that common, so I think. Um, so I was really interested in food security issues and specifically working with smallholder coffee farmers and understanding how food security affect them and how they affect food security. Um, particularly interested in why some projects work and some projects don't work. So talking about development that comes into an area and wants to support farmers and for some reason uh, some projects really take off and do a great job and some projects kind of um, don't. And so I was really curious about what cultural issues, socioeconomic contexts, take place there and what makes some projects work and some not. And then needs assessment in communities and understanding how to do that really well. Um, and then also impact assessment of projects. I think it's it's really important that we're evaluating the development that we're doing to understand um, what what the impact is and if it's addressing the needs and maybe other needs come up as development takes place or, or things shift or change. And so sometimes we can build on projects by uh, doing a little bit more differently, um, that kind of thing. So that's how I came into coffee. I've been able to work on a project that is in Yapacapa, Guatemala. And just imagine going around to the other side of the Fuego volcano from where Antigua is and you're in Yapacapa. Um, so the project that I've been working on is called the Sustainable Incomes Through Coffee Farming Improvement Project. The idea was to help six cooperatives of smallholder coffee farmers overcome devastation, hi Dana, of, um, from coffee leaf rust disorder that really uh, swept through the region in 2012 and 13. And um, this region was selected by Ana Cafe because it was one of two that were worst affected by uh, the coffee leaf rust disease and because it's, got, uh, it's characterized by very smallholder farmers. So the idea was to introduce the Centro Americano coffee hybrid to these farming communities. And this is a, a coffee plant that's got... Um, Resistance to Roya. It's been bred for, for Roya resistance or, or coffee leaf rust disorder resistance and also a good production and, um, supposed to have a good cup quality also. So this to be introduced to the communities to help them, um, regain productivity after, um, you know, the disease is coming through. So this is kind of looks like where uh, the, the communities are located. This is a map of where the Centro-Americano hybrids were or, or are um, concentrated per community. And this is um, 
little bit sort of snapshot of what the communities look like. So we've got Montiano's got 187 members. They are uh, about 30 years old now. And then San Pedrana, which Ryan works closely with, they're 52 years old. So we've got some that are younger, some that are um, have been around for and, and uh, formed for a long time, and some that are a little bit closer into the actual town of Yapacapa, and some that are a little bit farther away. So the studies that I've been doing, they can break them into kind of two main or uh, two phases. Uh, phase one, I went in just trying to understand what's going on in the communities. You know, I'm not from there, um, didn't grow up growing coffee, so I wanted the farmers to explain to me really where they are in space and time. So where they are, you know, climate-wise, what goes on in the region, climate-wise, it affects coffee production, and then also culturally, you know, where they are, um, some cases, uh, they've been around for a long time and, and, you know, they each deal with different issues. So, um, we worked through that in phase one and then phase two built off of that from issues that came out of, uh, phase one or, or were identified in phase one. So, um, to dig into, so, what we do is run focus groups, have interviews with the farmers, or that's that's what I do, and um, get them to think about their obstacles or, you know, explain to me situations of different things that they've gone through in the past. And um, what I get to do then is decipher that or analyze that to identifying the obstacles to coffee production in the region, in the region obstacles to coffee sale, in the region, and then anything that has affected the farmer's perception or ability or interest to uptake the hybrids, and um, then further down the line to understand how the hybrids are working for them. Um, so from phase one, these really sort of general uh, topics that we discuss, you know, obstacles in the regions, these really kind of basic um, ideas came this uh, from the farmers description that they their main constraint in the region across the board and in every community is profitability they don't make enough money from uh, their coffee sales to reinvest back into their coffee parcels they don't make enough to overcome you know when they when the coffee leaf rust came through and then we had a drought after that and then the volcano erupted after that so those are really really tough farmers don't have any kind of a, a base you know to uh, savings and that kind of thing so that's really really hard um, it's hard for them to, to overcome replant uh, you know their parcels if coffee's damaged and things like that and it's definitely not enough to sustain their families fully off of coffee so all the farmers talk about doing other things they either make tortillas or they have a little uh, shop or uh, somebody drives a truck for somebody else you know these kinds of things so they all do these other things um, so these issues led us to want to dig in more and understand profitability in more detail, and that was a fairly difficult feat, um, considering that these communities don't keep records. They don't, they can't give you details on what they spend or how much income they bring in, um, you know, they, they don't have record of that that I can list and go through. So, in lieu of having anything concrete um, like that to use, we had focus groups and we did three things. One was to create a representative farming family. 
So that's useful because whoever's in the room is talking about this sort of hypothetical family. They're not saying, you know, I do this in my family, this particular thing. They don't have to put anyone on the spot. I just say, like, why don't you guys describe to me what a family would be like? And so they get to, it gets fun, too. You know, they get to pick, like, oh, the family has eight members or ten members or twelve members, and most of them are on site, and uh, four of them work in the coffee, and one of them is uh, in the city making an income that they send into the family, and the other ones are kids that are trying to go to school. So we make this representative family, whatever they feel represents their community. And then we also make a representative coffee parcel. So these are things you can see, these three, uh, those three posters that are on the wall. Taya is showing a photo of a dozen Guatemalan farmers sitting on plastic chairs looking at a facilitator and the three wall charts behind him. And so um, that's what that looks like. It's literally something that's on the wall and we, we write it out or we draw pictures or whatever it takes to... to um, to paint this picture of what's going on in the region. And this is all directed by the farmers, you know. Danielle, who's here in the audience, he's got a cold. <laughs> Poor guy here visiting us in Boston. So he runs the, the focus groups and, um, you know, gets the farmers to talk about stuff and writes everything on the board in front of us. And then, so we create a representative coffee parcel. So we talk about how many plants are on that parcel, what the unit of land is, um, um, fertilizer, cost of production, income coming from that parcel, things like that. And then we create a timeline of coffee management. So we're saying this farming family that we've created here does what on this representative coffee parcel throughout the year? And um, that is where we talk about, okay, so for instance, right after harvest, what do you guys do? Oh, well, we go in and we clean all the rows up, you know, we get any kind of uh, leaf litter out of there or whatever, we um, pull weeds. Okay, well, how long would that take you on this parcel? And would you be paying somebody to do it or would you, as the family member, do it? Um, would the whole family do it? Does one person need to do it? Uh, how long does it take? Do you need a tool? What kind of products do you need during that time? Um, and so we're always able to relate that back to this one unit of land. So it gives us um, um, something that we can compare amongst the different commu- communities. We're talking about, you know, cost and income and labor that are going into this one unit of land. Um, and then we talk about uh, income and break up the harvest season too. And so in the end, from the profitability study, from, from these exercises I just described, we get data on the cost of living, the cost of coffee production, and the income from coffee. And one important thing that we talk to the farmers are about is um, what would be a low or a poor a sort of reasonable or expected, sort of common, and a high price that the farmers have experienced within the last 10 years. So this is something that's, you know, that they've actually experienced. So within the last 10 years, what's the lowest price that you've been paid? Um, and what's kind of a price that you generally would expect to pay or to be paid, and that would be sort of acceptable? And what's like the best price you've experienced? And then we do the same for production. And that gives us um, enough data to enter into... Um, this Monte Carlo simulation into a, a program, program called Scimitar. And what that does is it, it runs all those numbers and it, it runs simulations of 500 iterations of a year of coffee production in the region. And um, so I'm going to describe to you what 
this one community, Icamantiano. I'm going to describe to you um, what the data looks like coming from that. So this is what it looks like. Taya has a chart titled Stop Light Charts, with red, yellow, and green columns. Taya's chart gets quite complicated, so I recommend pausing this podcast here, finding the slides for this lecture on the SCA website, and pressing play again. On this chart, on the left, you see probabilities. Um, and so if, you, if you're looking at yellow, you're looking at the probability that in any given year in that community, the farmers will make an income that's between zero and their cost of living. If there's green on the chart, you're, that means that that's their probability of making an income that's above their cost of living. And if you see red, that's the probability of making an income that's uh, below zero or they essentially be losing money to produce coffee. And we set, uh, we can set in this program, we can set our floor and our ceiling. In this case, the floor is zero, just so anything below that and they're losing money and anything above that, they're not losing money. And then, uh, we set our ceiling at the cost of living. So in this case, in this community, we're talking about, uh, on average, the farmers have 12 cuerdas of land and we were, referencing one unit. So this number that you see here is one-twelfth of the cost of living in that community to be relatable to talking about one-twelfth of their um, coffee production or their, their land planted in coffee. So what this is telling you, on the left there, you can see that in this community, um, in any given year, they have uh, zero chance of making above their cost of living and they have also a zero chance of losing money in coffee production. And that is, that's on the left, right? And that is without calculating in a dollar amount for the time that the farmers spend working in their own um, land, in their own coffee production. And then on the right, we put a dollar amount to the amount of time they spend, and we added that into um, to their costs. And so you can see that that changes the situation, and now they have about a 50-50 chance any given year of losing money um, producing coffee. And I told you that all the farmers say that they do other things to make a living, right? So that's the tortillas and the truck driving and, and that stuff. So this is a snapshot of um, what it looks like with their other income, in here. So it starts to make sense why they're doing these other jobs and why they're not focusing just on coffee. So in this case, you know, on the left, you see that they have about a 60% chance of making income that's above their cost of living any given year. Um, that's without, you know, putting a dollar amount and, and calculating in the amount of time that they spend in their own uh, coffee production. And then on the right, you see um, where we've actually calculated dollar amount to their own um, efforts. And so once we have all of that data into the program, the, the real data of what's going on in the communities, we can start to play with the numbers a little bit. So uh, on the left, that is the, the, um, the bar from the first graph, right? So we're back to just talking about income from coffee. 
And so that's where they have that 100% chance of being between zero and their cost of living. And just to the right of that, where it says with hybrids, that is considering a 30% higher uh, production across the board. Um, so we, the hybrids that are planted in the region now aren't mature enough to know exactly how they're going to perform in the end. Um, but the literature breeders tell us that we should expect that those hybrids will produce about 30% more. So that's where that comes from. The farmers are also seeing that the hybrids need an extra fertilizer application. So the cost of one extra fertilizer application is included in that also. Um, and then in the middle there, we call that bar the volcano uh, because the farmers in some of the communities this year estimated that they lost about 40% of their production from the volcanic eruption. So that's where that came from. But that could be anything that reduces the production by 40%. Drought, storm, uh, coffee leaf rust disorder, you know, um, anything like that. So you see there that they're back to having um, almost 100% chance of being between zero and their cost of living and starting to run a chance of being uh, below zero or losing money or like paying to produce their coffee. And then to the right of that is a bar that's showing you what higher prices would look like. In this region, the farmers have two ways of selling their coffee. So they sell either to a coyote, which is just a guy that drives around in a pickup truck and buys coffee um, in cherry in sacks and pays cash on the day of sale and then the other way is through a contractor which makes a contract with the community sometimes with individuals usually with the community and they will decide on a quantity that they'll purchase and the farmers will decide on you know to be able to provide that quantity but they don't set a price so they set a price at the end of the season, so the farmers don't necessarily know what they're going to receive um, throughout the season as they're bringing in their coffee, and then they wait for a long time to be paid also after that. Um, and then in the end, they're not making that much. So they're making more than the coyotes that pay, um, but not that much. And so these are the two methods of sale in the region, and we um, just added 20% higher prices to both of those. This community sells about 60 uh, to contractor, 40% to the coyotes. So across the board, we um, just added 20% to that. And that's what that looks like. So they start to have a chance of making an income that's between or that's above their cost of living in that case. And then the best case on this board is where we see both higher prices and higher production. And there's an interesting thing that happens in the program um, that shows where... Um, the combination of those two is greater than the sum of just higher prices or higher production. So that's interesting. There's a compound effect happening there. And then these are those exact same uh, scenarios, but where we've calculated in, again, the a dollar amount for uh, the farmer's own time spent in in, in their coffee production. So again, that's, that's the bar that was on the right in the first, uh, slide. And then we have the scenario with hybrid. So higher production, you can see that the situation does get better. There's a lot more yellow on that board or, or in that bar. And then in the middle, the volcano where they've lost 40% of production, really, if you calculate in their own time, and this is just considering their time to be stable. Right, but really in a case where the volcano is erupted or a storm has come through, they're probably spending more time um, and maybe also even more on production or, or things like that, right? So the, the program isn't calculating that in. It's also not calculating in the fact that um, 
from year to year. So a year after something like a volcano eruption or a outbreak of coffee leaf versus soy, you're probably still having low production a year or two or three after that. Um, and then, you know, you can see the scenario with higher prices still is better than the one that's all the way on the left. And then the best one on the board is the higher prices and um, higher production combination. So the conclusions of this, uh, profitability is a significant uh, constraint in this community. It really restricts what the farmers are able to do of their own accord. It restricts their ability to innovate and be able to sort of do, you know, anything different. Um, so it's, it's, it's a real, real problem. And then we believe that a multifaceted approach is best, as you could see that, uh, addressing both production and price are important or that the combination is the best case. And, um, you know, I don't have an answer for how to address the equivalent daily wage issue, but this gets at the fact that we talk about things like cost of production, but we have to consider all the way to cost of living. So if we're really going to make an impact in communities where we're um, doing development, we have to think about, you know, these larger scale things, right? Not just what's the bare minimum cost of production, and often case the cost of production goes up when we're asking them to, to do all the things that it takes to produce a specialty coffee. Um, so, you know, in, in a case where the farmers are trying to switch now to picking better coffee, they have to consider that that takes a lot more time. So they're having to pay their pickers differently and restructure that. So, um, so that starts to get at that and just that, that we need to think about this even farther and sort of greater than, um, than we are in a lot of cases. And then, you know, being able to address shocks also is, um, as they happen, especially in this region with the, <laughs> with the volcano. Um, so Ryan's going to talk to you about his work with the Cooperativa San Pedrana. They're one of the communities that's been a part of my study. So that's interesting that, you know, I was working there for a couple of years and then met Ryan, who'd also been working there for a couple of years. And we've been sort of, you know, crossing paths in the night kind of thing and um, then met. And so now we're working together to use some of the kinds of numbers that I just showed you in his business strategy and giving him some kind of goals and, and ways to steer a conversation with the farmer. So he'll explain what he does in more detail. Thank you, Taya. Um, okay, so I've been working with La Cooperativa San Pedrana for about four years, um, almost into our fifth year. Um, they're a cooperative of about 140 farmers, and they've got some farmers that only produce, that only uh, harvest uh, like 40 to 50 quintales, or 100-pound bags of cherries, upwards to 400 uh, quintales. So for the most part, um, they're not, uh, in terms of their scale of production, not the, uh, uh, they're smallholder farmers, sorry, excuse me. Um, and kind of one of the things that we saw when we, when we got there wasn't that one of the obstacles that we saw was definitely profitability, but it was also lack of opportunity, um, that they didn't necessarily have a means to bring about a change or a result for themselves. So whether they picked their cherries really ripe, or whether they picked it entirely green, they would oftentimes receive the same price. And so the only avenue for them to kind of like dodge this bullet was to reduce their costs. 
Um, and so what re- reducing their costs looked like prior to receiving their export was cutting costs on fertilizers, cutting costs on time spending in their fields, maintaining these plants. And, and sadly, over years of time, their plants became more susceptible to disease, leaf rust, production numbers went down. And so it was, began to really affect these farmers. And so here, I kind of came on board and uh, during 2014, uh, early of 2015, and really wanted to find a way to build relationships with buyers in a way that could actually incentivize their quality so that instead of this spiral system down to low productivity, to being more prone to disease and low quality and, and low prices, that we could actually begin to incentivize positive change that would increase quality, increase production, um, help potentially, um, or theoretically at least, uh, help the farmers to be less prone to th- diseases like leaf rust. Um, and the byproduct of that, um, not only honoring farmers with better prices, but then offering a better quality product to roasters. And so that's been our objective. Um, and we also realized it was a two-way relationship. When we started, their quality was at a 78 or 79. Um, over half of what was picked was picked really green or underripe. Um, and so there wasn't really much of a habit or a, a cognitive understanding of what quality coffee looked like um, or uh, not much understanding of what the other side of the supply chain looked like as well. And so over the last four years, we've really been working with them on processing, maturation, varietal selection, plant health, and all of these other factors that go into what what we consider to be specialty coffee. Um, and what's been amazing is due to the relationships that we've been able to build with roasters that, that understand that we're in this, pro- this progress of development or this sort of like gradual development. And actually, there's a few roasters here today, so it's kind of cool. Thank you, guys. Um, and we've been able to raise these cupping scores from small plot farmers, small, smallholder farmers, from the 78s to 79s we saw four years ago so we've got 84 to 86s this year and maybe an 87 on the table. And so this is something that like I love sharing that because I want to give them the credit behind the, the improvement that they did. And I also want to give credit to the roasters that have backed us in this sort of support. Um, and the cool part is, which this is where I'm going to begin to criticize myself, so it's funny because I'm, yeah, is even though we've been able to pay these better prices, the question is, has it actually helped these farmers be profitable? And so really what I want to talk about is what is profitability? And let, let's have a bit more of, a, of an in-depth conversation on profitability because even though it's really cool to say that we're paying them more, to what extent and how much is it helping uh, is really kind of the questions that we want to begin to ask. And Taya spent a lot of time really diving into those questions and meeting with the farmers and, and collecting this data to be able to do, so, do that sort of presentation, I guess. So really kind of the four factors that I want to talk about today behind profitability is cost of production, prices received, uh, production volume, and cost of living. A lot of times when we're talking about profitability, we're talking about cost of production, cost of production, cost of production, and then every once in a while we'll kind of talk and how that uh, relates to the prices that they're receiving. But I really think that um, those two are very important, but I also think that the last two are just as equally important, and they're not often included in these conversations. So I'd love to include these last two values uh, or last two factors in our profitability conversation as well. Okay, um, so first let's talk about cost of production. Uh, I've seen some documents out there that says like cost of production in the world is $1.40 a pound, which is like, that might be a cool average, but like 
cost of production in Brazil is just different than cost of production in Guatemala. And we also know like cost of production in Antigua, which is another like, you know, 10 or 20 miles away, is just different than the cost of production that we're here, uh, that we're at in, in, in Yepocapa. We'll also understand that there's both fixed and variable costs. Uh, a representation of a fixed cost is a farmer paying a worker to pick coffee cherries. Oftentimes that's between 50 and 70 quetzales per 100 pound bag is what they'll pick. And that's a fixed cost per, per bag of coffee. Whereas there's variable costs. They'll invest money into fertilizers or uh, invest time into their fields, working the lands or deshading the trees. But they really don't know what that's going to calculate out to until the production is already finished. And so sometimes that might be a high production cost or a low production cost depending upon their production. There are also unexpected costs. Um, there was a volcano eruption this year in June of 2018. Um, and the, the ash covered just all of these plants. And so the next day they had to go out and, and remove the ash from these plants in order for the plants to photosynthesize. And so that was an additional cost that farmers didn't really realize or that farmers don't normally have to, um, have to take on, but be due to these sort of unexpected costs that happen or leaf rust. Um, and then also specialty coffee production. Uh, I'll talk about this a little bit later, but it's definitely a lot more expensive to produce specialty grade coffee, not just on the farming side, on, you know, thinking about plant health, but also on the harvesting side, but also on the processing side, the, the, the uh, process, and then uh, getting the coffees uh, converted from parchment into green coffee as well, um, the dry milling side. This number that I have provided, I'm going to be talking about it more on the next slide, but I, I basically went around and asked the farmers, what is your cost of production. This isn't talking about processing. This is just more on the farming aspect in their, in their, in their fields. And a lot of them began to kind of tell me around this 110, 135, 125 sort of number. So just kind of for, for hearsay, we're going to, we're going to use this number as a cost of production specifically for our area. Ryan is showing a table on the screen titled pricing. It shows the three prices the Cooperativa San Pedrona receives and how that translates to profits or losses for the cooperative at the end of the day. The three prices are the sea market price at $1.05 per pound of green coffee, the fair trade price at $1.40 per pound of green coffee, and the Yepocapa coffee value, or the specialty differentiated price, which is $2.24 per pound of green. Okay, so this is a kind of a big chart, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to uh, walk you through it real fast. So here I have, on the top side, I have represented the three different coffee markets that are now accessible to La Cooperativa San Birana. The first market is your C-market value, um, and in January of 2019, that was at $1.05. But oftentimes when we talk about profitability, we talk about FOB values, right? But the, the question is, there is something that's really important to note, is that oftentimes that's not necessarily what the smallholder farmers are receiving. And so it's really important that we get to know the logistics or the just how the, the, yeah, the logistics of how things work in order to kind of come up with what are the, what prices are the farmers actually receiving when they are depositing their cherries at a cooperative or in what, and how, how that structure works. So we're kind of able to, to go from the FOB value and kind of calculate it back down into the actual price that farmers are paid in hand. Um, and so what, what I've done for these two, for both the sea market value and the fair trade value, is I've added eight cents per pound that goes towards uh, dry milling costs and transportation costs, also Anna Cafe taxes to export. 
And then dividing that number by 1.29, which 129 pounds of parchment is equivalent to 100 pounds of green coffee. And so that kind of gives us, under the C market value, that gives us a 75 cents per pound or 563 quetzales, which is a price point in which a lot of cooperatives actually receive this sort of price point for their coffee, which is, which is connected to the C market value if they're selling it at that price point. And when you deduct kind of the, the cost of processing the, the, the cherries into parchment, we find that cooperatives want to try and pay their farmers the, the best price that they can because they're a cooperative. And so they try to re- reduce their costs. And so here, they're only paying themselves, like the, the workers at the wet mill and all the machinery, they're only allotting three cents per pound or 22 quetzales per, per hundred pound bag in order to cover those costs of production or processing. And then that enables um, the farmers at this point to receive a um, to receive 114 quetzales per bag of cherries, or 15 cents per pound if you kind of equivalent out into American currency. Um, and then using that same sort of idea of what the farmers have communicated to us of cost of production, we find that at the C market value, based upon what the prices what the farmers will receive at the street market value, this is often selling to coyotes. They're actually losing money. Um, and so the only way that they don't lose money is by trying to reduce their costs. And we've, what we talked about before, reducing costs isn't a sustainable model. Oftentimes it'll encourage more leaf rust, more disease. Uh, their production will go down, which will make them more susceptible to not being profitable and lower quality. So that's not something that we want to encourage of lowering their cost of produ- they're lowering their costs, right? Um, and so this is kind of a sad scenario that's, that's relatively true for a lot of smallholder farmers that they're losing money farming for an entire year. Okay, so the next value is um, fair trade coffee. Um, in January, it, uh, they typically add 20 cents onto the, onto the FOB value, but they actually make sure that the cost for uh, fully washed coffee can act, cannot actually go down below $1.40, so that is their minimum. So based upon that minimum price, that's a fair trade value, we're able to do the same calculations to bring that cost down to the cherry value and we find that they are able to cover their cost of production, and they're able to make a little bit of profit. And so we could theoretically say that it is profitable, right, until we go into our next slides. Um, and then lastly, this is, um, this is the average FOB value that we pay um, as Yepo Kappa Coffee um, for their specialty grade coffee. And so we've been working with these farmers talking about these different values like, um, like plant health, plant varietal, maturation, farming practices, and processing, right? Um, and instead of the eight cents per pound that goes towards dry milling, taxes, and transportation, we're actually bumped up that value to 15 cents per pound to show that it's actually more expensive because the, because of the value is higher, they actually pay more taxes. And on the processing side, we do special preparation for our for our part for, for to get our coffees from parchment into green coffee, and that's at a higher cost as well. So considering that extra cost, the parchment value is down to a dollar sixty one per pound or a thousand two hundred quetzales per quintal. And then we also bumped up our wet mill costs. Um, the San Bijana was able to hire more workers this year to, to make sure that the coffees were being processed well, fermented in separate tanks with systems of traceability. That meant more time, and which also means more money. And so we, all, we also doubled that cost from the, on the quetzales side of things um, to 41 quetzales per 100-pound you know, bag of cherries or five cents a pound. Um, and then we're also able to look at, then de- deducting that, we come to a cherry value of 246 quetzales, 
or 33 cents a pound. And we're able to see, I also um, increased my cost of production. I, I also asked the farmers, okay, considering that you're spending more money on inputs, compost, more time in your field, and um, paying your workers in a different way to, in- to incentivize quality, what does that cost look like to you? And a lot of them have told me a minimum of 165 quetzales. And so that value can actually be more than that. That's just kind of a minimum number. Um, and so with that calculations, we're able to come to realize that they're able to make clo- just under three times more profit than selling kind of in this sort of traditional fair trade model. Or this is, that's kind of a price that they're traditionally received from their exporter. Um, but the real question is just because that might be more, um, does that help them be profitable? And it really also depends on production volume. Ryan is showing a table titled Production Volume. It shows three types of farmers. Farmer A is the smallest, producing only 50 pounds of cherry. Farmer B is larger, producing 100 pounds of cherry. And farmer C is the largest, producing 400 pounds of cherry. It suggests the largest farmer, farmer C, has the potential to earn the most profit when prices are high, but also stands to make the biggest losses when prices are low. And so I have three representative farmers, farmer A, farmer B, and farmer C, um, all producing different amounts of coffee. The farmer A produces 50 quintales. I'll use that word a lot. I apologize. It's a quintal is a 100-pound bag of coffee cherries. Um, farmer B kind of is our average farmer within La Cooperativa San Pedrana. They produce 100 bags of coffee cherries. And farmer C will produce 400 bags of coffee cherries. And that's kind of one of our larger farmers. But there's obviously farmers that can produce 20,000 or 50,000 and things like that too. Um, we just, uh, we don't have the capacity to work with farmers at large at the moment with La Sembirana. And if we look at, at the C market value, um, they're losing money. And what's interesting is the farmer that has the largest production is actually losing the most amount of money. And we've seen this in Yepokapa as well, like l- really large, uh, production farms will actually go out of business um, because it's one thing to lose a dollar, let's just say a dollar per pound times 10 pounds, but it's a whole nother thing to lose a dollar per pound times 50,000 pounds. It's like, holy cow, how do I, how do I come back from that? A lot of times large production farms, when they receive really low prices and they find out that their costs of production was actually higher than what they received, they can, they're susceptible to go bankrupt. And we see that here. Um, we find with the fair trade value, which is really great, I do really appreciate that they set a minimum price to ensure relatively that the farmers can at least lose money farming, that they're at least making a small portion of money, which I think is, is really great that they do have that minimum price, uh, especially since we've seen our sea market value just tank this year, right? Um, and then lastly, kind of the Yepokapa coffee value, we see that um, farmer A, the lower val- volume, he's not necessarily making all that much, making $550 annual profit. And what we know, and we haven't done the study with La Sempirana, we don't know what the actual cost of living is in, in for Yapocapa, but we would assume that that's not enough. Um, and so even with the better prices, for farmers that are only producing 50 quintales of coffee cherries, it's probably not enough to cover their cost of living. And so what we do find, though, but farmer B and farmer C probably has a better shot at receiving prices that can potentially, and once again, we don't have an answer to that, but can potentially um, receive a price point that can um, meet their cost of living. And then also, it's really interesting to, I want to talk about percentage of influence, because it's one thing to give good prices, but um, but if I'm only buying 0.002% of their coffee at a great price, wh- what significance is that? It's really low significance. And so um, this is kind of a neat history of Yepokapa coffee and, our, and what we've bought. 
Um, when we started in 2015, 2016, um, we only had enough money, um, and and we we just yeah we were just kind of starting, um, and we bought four bags of coffee. And looking at the difference between what we bought and their production, we actually were only able to buy 0.002 percent of their annual production. Um, so even though we were able to pay um, a two dollars and fourteen cents FOB price for that coffee, we could rest assured basically say that that didn't make much of a difference at all. Um, but then it kind of, as years went on, we we're, were able to improve the quality of the coffees amongst, with these farmer groups. We were also able to build more relationships with coffee roasters that got on board. And with that, um, our second year, we were able to buy a container. Um, and that made a 17.1% interest and in uh, 17.1% influence. And the farmers began to notice, oh, wow, if I'm willing to put in the work to, to, to invest more, to produce a higher grade quality coffee, there's a possibility for me to obtain better prices, which wasn't an option before. Our third and fourth year just got really just better. Like more farmers got on board um, and more roasters were willing to partner with us in this vision. We're able to buy 27%. And then this year we're looking probably around 45. Those numbers aren't final for this last year's harvest. Um, So it's interesting too to look at profitability um, that if, if I'm going to make a claim as a business to say that I'm helping to make coffee farming sustainable for smallholder farmers, I also have to look at what percentage of influence I'm having on their entire production. Um, all, there's also a lot of um, constraints or influences to volume of production. There's, um, I included one that's positive so that it's not just a negative conversation. Um, but first, like climate change, um, that really, it's, it's very difficult with all of the changes in, in the climate. Um, just different variables happen and farmers have to constantly learn and adapt according to the climate. Um, leaf rust. There have been years where, since 2012, where farmers have lost up to 80% some years. Um, but I know farmers that are traditionally losing 50% of their, of their production. And so that's, that's huge. Um, and then natural disasters, like, like whether that be storms or whether that be the, uh, the eruption that happened, that's also going to lower production. Um, then there's also a phenomenon in coffee that I don't really understand, but Taya does, is that there's just high, in, high years and low years in, in coffee production, in, in the plant itself. Some, some years the plant will give a lot more, some years it'll give less, and that's agronomy 101 that I don't understand. Um, but what I do know is that when you invest into its plant health and when you um, invest into better farming practices, what, in the way that you take care of the soil or the shade um, and just all of these other factors, that it does give better production. And so fi- like for me as an importer, I want to buy coffees in a way that incentivizes this, po- this positive growth, um, positive plant health and better farming practices. And lastly, cost of living. I really think um, something I'm really passionate about is I really want to think of profitability with um, cost of living factored in. If farmers only make $100 profit annually and that's not enough for them um, to live, I, I don't think that's profitable at all. And so I, I really think it's important that we do this type of studies that Tay is doing so we can learn what is the cost of living for people like in Yapocapa or in Antigua or in Brazil so that we can begin to set sort of um, price points based upon production volumes that we can see coffee farming actually be profitable, not only meet their cost of living, but offer something that's a bit higher than that, which would be great. Um, like I said, it differs from country and region. Um, giving them a price point that covers their cost of living also enables them to reinvest back in their plants because then they know if I reinvest back in my plants, it'll raise my quality, it'll raise my production, and I can have a, a better profit that next year, which is a lot of these farmers have big vision, and I want to partner with their vision. Um, and then, yeah, 
enabling living wage. And I think one thing that really inspires me is when I ask coffee farmers, why do you want to be profitable? Or what are your dreams? And a lot of the times it's, I want to give my children a sustainable career or a profitable career once I die. Or it's, I want to be able to afford education for my kids. And that's just something that's like, oh my goodness, that really hits me. And I want to partner with them in that too. Um, so kind of the takeaways um, that, that I see of, of us um, having a bigger vision for what profitability looks like and, and investing and partnering alongside farmers to, to find, to uh, incentivize their quality at the farm level um, so that coffee farming can be more profitable. Basically, like, I, I really want the industry to have a more of a holistic approach uh, and an understanding behind profitability. It's not just this factor that's about price and that's about cost of farming. It also includes cost of living and um, size of production. I also love the fact, it's been amazing meeting uh, me and Taya. I'm very spontaneous and not very, like, scientific. And Taya is just, like, very focused and very scientific. Um, and so it's been a lot of fun for us to partner together and, and to really realize that we can, eva- we can conduct studies to find real information to see, am I actually being effective as an importer to help make coffee farming profitable for the farmers that I'm working with? And she can actually do studies like that to give me feedback to be a better importer, to better work with these farmers, to better understand their plant health, to better understand what obstacles they're facing. And if I can be empowered with that information, I can make more informed decisions and I can potentially hopefully be a better importer or supplier of coffees Um, and then even offer better quality coffees to the roasters that we're partnering with as well. Yeah, and I'll let Taya take it from here. Let's see if I can wrap this up. I think, um, yeah, just just from my point of view, um, if I was going to leave you guys with anything, it's the importance of understanding what's going on at the site um, or at that particular region where the coffee is coming from, we can make sort of general claims about things, about the way coffee plants should be functioning, or varieties, or um, cup profiles of entire countries, or, um, you know, there's, there's all kinds of stuff that gets thrown around. But when you get down to it, um, what matters is what's going on right there at the site, where the coffee's from, coming from, where the coffee's being produced. And, you know, like Ryan was saying, he went from Yapacapa to Antigua to Brazil, which is a big jump. <laughs> but, but what Ryan is saying is that, um, that, you know, we see that even amongst the communities, right? I work with five different communities, and even amongst the communities, some prices are a little bit different. The, uh, because of the altitudinal range across the region, coffees are coming in earlier in some cases and later in other cases, and the ones that come in earlier are coming in during the time when it's still raining and that causes problems to processing that some of the other communities that are in a little bit higher regions in the same area aren't facing, right? So even just within this one region, this one small area of Guatemala, we see a lot of variability. And the studies that we've been able to do there have allowed us to to look at that a little bit further. So um, to understand what's going on in each area and and look at that in more detail. Um, So if I was going to leave you with anything, I think it's really important that we understand what's going on in that context that is context-specific. If we're talking about profitability, we're going to talk about some of these other kinds of issues, right? Um, 
and so what we're continuing to do in the region is uh, build on the studies that we have already done. So I showed you that in phase one, we cast this really wide net and collected a lot of information about all kinds of stuff, the you know, full history of coffee production for the farming communities. Um, and then we narrowed into profitability and started looking at that in more detail and, and in looking at that, now we are um, digging literally into soils and doing some soil studies, looking at uh, plant nutrition and soil fertility and the management that the farmers are doing and working that into profitability. If we're going to be able to give these farmers really good recommendations about what they need to do to bring their quality up and to be a little bit more profitable, we need to be able to give them those details. Um, so that's what we're doing now, so y'all can stay tuned for more work to be, go- to be done and, and more information to come out of Yapacapa. <laughs> for my part, I have to thank my uh, many funders and supporters, and uh, Danielle Duvon, who's here, who's helped me run all of my studies in Guate, and uh, my advisor, Leo Lombardini, who's also here. So if anyone has, anybody have any questions? An audience member is asking whether Taya and Ryan experienced any problems introducing the Central Americano hybrids to these cooperatives, and were there any costs to adopting these hybrids? So I'm, I was not a part, actually, of the introduction of the hybrids. I was brought in to evaluate the project. So literally what my dissertation is about is the constraints to uptake of those hybrids. And... Um, in some cases, there was a little bit of information that could have been either, I don't know how, if you could say you could share it better, but there was information the farmers didn't fully understand. And so that's been um, one issue. But there, a lot of farmers have, to, have taken them and planted them, and they have um, good production you know, they, they're liking what they look like in the field. One of the things that we're starting to dig into is this uh, issue that they may, the, the hybrids may take more fertilizer to produce at the levels that we're expecting them to, to make the claims to be more profitable. And coming from the smallholder standpoint, that's a hard thing to just pivot and be able to do. So that's where the support that we're able to give, and if Ryan's able to, to start developing markets that can purchase the coffee, if the farmers know that they have that to look forward to, there's more incentive and motivation to actually bite the bullet and pay the cost and do the extra fertilization. And we'll be able to track that and show the farmers what kind of impact that's making. Right, so this is where the longer-term situation gets to be more beneficial for everyone. You have more information over time. Um, but, yeah, so, you know, information's a big one. And then the benefits that the hybrids have, too, um, like, you know, cup quality initially wasn't something, still isn't something that makes a big difference for the farmers. They start having more direct markets that will be able to pay them more for the different qualities. That starts to make a difference, right? And and the situation starts to change there. So I'm not sure if I answered your question, but. The same audience member is asking, what percentage of farmers didn't adopt the Central Americano hybrid variety? That's really hard to say. It was, uh, it the hybrids were, there was a bunch of plants that were given, you know, somebody showed up and said, we want to give you guys plants. So the farmers that had space that they could renovate, 
said how much space that they had, and the plants were delivered based off of that the area that they had available. So it was done through the cooperative structure. Um, it wasn't like we had 400 farmers and then 200 of them did, 200 didn't, you know, so, yeah. An audience member is asking about the coffee prices used in the analyses. Yeah, so the crucial thing in there was that the farmers told us what they had experienced within the last 10 years as far as low prices, sort of common expected prices and high prices. And based off of that, that goes into the program and is run. So we do that. That's for production and price. And that's what fluctuates, right? And the other costs would stay the same in that case. And we know that there's a fluctuation there, right? As uh, productivity goes up, your prices or your, your costs might go up to, you know, and what this is an example. This is a place to start in a program that we could use to show something that was visual that would make sense. And this is uh, information that we share back with the farmers too. So this is in a, a form that's sort of uh, simple to grasp and understand and we show how as the context changes, that uh, probability of being profitable to that certain extent changes. An audience member is asking whether the farmers grow crops other than coffee to earn an income. That happens. What I've seen specifically is farmers will start doing something else, so they'll plant something else on their coffee uh, parcels also. So we've got some wood. There's like some cedar trees that the, in that area go for a, quite a bit of money. And um, with everything going on, I know a few farmers that have just planted around the perimeter of their parcels, those uh, wood-bearing trees and um, and that kind of thing. Some really into do a, a really amazing job of uh, interspersing fruit trees in their parcels. That's not necessarily something they sell um, but, you know, they eat them themselves and, um, and, and do sell some percentage of it. So, um, and there's honey in the region. And that's another thing that we're looking at also for longer term is doing some diversification with these farmers with things like honey that have been produced in the region for a long time. And now we have a, a you know, a small group of farmers that produce honey, but more could produce honey. And if that, if we can sell it, then we can start to incentivize more of that. Um, and that just helps bring in another form of income, right? That's not as dependent on the same exact factors as coffee. So you have more stability and profitability. An audience member is asking how the farmers learn to produce higher quality coffee. Yeah. I would say it's more of a case of them figuring out how to do it than like a human rights issue that we're trying to push a trickle down. You know, they're just realizing like, oh, <laughs> if I'm going to ask people to pick things differently, I'm going to have to pay them differently to pick them differently, right? And so they're, they're, and this is one of the things that we're helping them work out. And this is where having relationships with roasters that have experience have seen this kind of thing done where uh, people have done development in communities and they've seen what works. Then we can come in and, and help these farmers with some ideas of something that we know has worked in the past and they can kind of tweak it instead of them trying something and then having to change it the next year and change it the next year for like five years until they figure out something that works, right? <laughs> yeah. We also found An audience member is asking whether the farmers can grow fruit on their land to earn additional income and whether that would be enough to convince them not to send one of their family members to the cities in search of work. So that's kind of the low-hanging fruit, right? If there's a market for something in the area, they can plant it, or they have the the cultural history of growing that or eating it, then then that's something that they can do. Um, 
I don't know. Do you, can you answer that if they, if it would keep them from doing, I mean, it's a family effort. You know, it's, it's different than, than the way we do things here in the U.S. In general, in Japokapa, it's a family effort. So you're sort of diversifying in that way. So it may be like, maybe they actually need to have two people working on the farm more of the time and doing less, you know, chopping wood for the neighbor or whatever. And from what I, all, all that I know that's relative to that is they really have a desire to find opportunities to, to make their careers sustainable in Yapokapa rather than having to leave almost, truthfully, almost half of the, half of the land in what, with where I'm familiar with is abandoned. Um, back mm-hmm. in 2001, when the sea market dropped, farmers realized, like, this isn't a profitable career. I'm going to ditch, go to Guatemala City go to the States, find other opportunities outside of my community. But farmers don't have that desire. They don't want to just ditch their land. It's their grandfather's land. It's their great-grandfather's land. They want to find a way to make it work. So, and that's where they're from. That's their time. You know, you're yeah. asking, you know, people have to leave their small town life and go to the big city and do, you know, it's more uh, congestion there and, and all kinds of stuff. So, um, yeah, people generally, I would say want to stay where they are or they want to go somewhere and have some life experience and come back. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Well, thank you guys for coming. That was Taya Brown and Ryan Shipman at the specialty coffee expo in April, 2019. Remember to check out our show notes for a full transcript of this lecture and a link to coffeeexpo.org for more information about this year's event. This has been an episode of the SCA Podcast Expo Lecture Series, brought to you by the members of the Specialty Coffee Association and supported by SAP's Soft Engine Coffee One. Thanks for listening.